Well, we're going to be um, in John um, 5. The, the bulletin's a misprint, but it, it should say John 5 today as we uh, move forward in this series on encountering Jesus. Over the last several weeks, we've looked at multiple different stories of people who have encountered Jesus, and their reaction, their response was different in different ways, different situations. Today is going to be the same thing. But there's something that is woven through each of these, and it's something that is a deep theological truth, and it's the truth of divine grace. Let me give you a quick definition of grace, divine grace. It is when God gives us something, extending favor toward us, that we do not deserve, extending favor toward us that we do not deserve. I think in our culture, what happens a lot is we take certain terms, and this would be one of them, that um, are, are not only theological and spiritual and biblical, but um, they give us life, and we tend to bring them down. We tend to simplify them to the point that um, it loses its meaning. I mean, we talk about extending grace to people. It's kind of a churchy phrase, right? We use it all the time. But part of what I want us to learn today is the magnitude and majesty and fullness of God's grace. As people who are saved by grace, we must understand grace. We must have not just the knowledge of it, but we should be people who, as Scripture says, we administer it in its various forms. And so today's encounter is with a man by a pool known as the Pool of Bethesda. This pool was a pool located in Jerusalem. And I want to talk a little bit about it, but let's set this story up by going to John 5 and read the first three verses. John 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So let me lay a bit of a foundation for this story, because it really starts to play in as Jesus interacts with this man who um, is, is lame, who cannot, um, cannot move on his own. This pool was located in Jerusalem, and pools were located. It's a little bit of an idea uh, in cities of a swimming pool. It's nothing like the aquatic center of Eaton, let me just tell you, okay? But it's kind of the idea that people gathered in this culture around these pools. They did use them for bathing, but they also used them for other reasons, not nearly like we would see from a recreational use. But particularly at this pool, but often at a lot of pools in cities, what happened is that they would start to gather people who um, did not have anywhere else to go. It was kind of a community public space. This pool in particular was known as the Pool of Bethesda. In Hebrew, Bethesda means house of mercy. And the name for this pool came about because this pool became known for something. From time to time, there was a popular belief that the water would be stirred in this particular pool. Bubbles come up and so on. Now, it was likely spring-fed. It may have been that happening, water, extra water coming in to feed it. 
but also there was this belief that at certain times, different, never quite known, the water would be stirred. And the superstition was that if you were, got, you were able to get into the water, the first one into the water, after the water was stirred, apparently there had been some healings take place. And so this became a place that all of those, as Scripture tells us, were lame, blind, paralyzed, ailing in a lot of different ways. They would gather here. So you look at the rest of the culture now. These people had become to be known as really a nuisance in society. Because of their ailments, those in society at that time said, you know what, they're really not good for anything. As harsh and cruel as that is, you know what, let's give them a place to go because then they will stay out of our hair. Then they will leave us alone because we don't really want to deal with them. The porticos were known to have been added to a lot of these pools, particularly this one, because it provided shade for those who came and spent time and time, years and years, hoping to be healed at the pool of Bethesda. And so this belief, this superstition, just fueled people coming there. But you didn't go there unless you were sick, lame, blind, whatever. Otherwise, you wouldn't be caught there by anyone else. Because you could potentially, as culture had it, become unclean. Rings a little bit true back to our story of the leper. So a little bit different from past stories where you've got a leper, you've got, um, uh, um, you've got a woman who has been sick, and they go into the common areas, the areas that um, they're not supposed to be in, to get to Jesus. This story is the opposite. Jesus comes into an area that no one wants to be in. Even those who are there don't want to be there because they're there hoping for healing. Now I want to pause here because something interesting about this text, and some of you, I know your minds, you're going to latch hold of this and you're going to want to go home and study this because I'm not going to do this uh, a full explanation. But I want you to look. Look in your Bibles. If you, Unless you have a King James or a New King James, maybe an NASB, if you look at the verse numbering, two, three, five. There's no four. Now, you may have an asterisk. You may have a note there. So you're saying, okay, what happened to verse four of John 5? Well, there's a lot of talk around this by scholars about whether this verse, particular verse, was legitimate, whether it really was, was authoritative like all the rest of Scripture. And early translations um, from um, Aramaic and, and Greek um, into English, like the King James, included verse 4. I want to show you what verse 4 looks like in the New King James Version. For an angel, talking about the pool of Bethesda, for an angel went down at the, a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. That's verse 4. After research and archaeological finds and um, understandings of the oral translation of Scripture, because remember, back in culture early on, is the, there was not, everybody didn't have their nice little leather-bound uh, Bible. Okay? It was spoken orally. It was transferred from place to place by the spoken word. And after 
after a lot of time and newer translations came along, what they began to see is that this verse really wasn't present, wasn't authoritative like it was translated into the King James. Now, if you're a scholar and you love all that look, yeah, come to me. I'll give you plenty of commentaries to read about, okay? We don't have time for that today. Here's why I wanted to share it. Because it did speak to the popular belief at that time. And this somewhat even of a superstition, even some spiritualizing that this was an angel of the Lord. There's no real proof of that. There's no real proof of the healings, except for the healing that was about to happen. So let's read a little further, starting in verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So think about this for a minute. Think about that we have this setting that nobody wants to go to or be at. Some are there by default, so to speak. And guess what Jesus does? He goes right, right there. He heads, he heads in there without any hesitation. It reminds us of this as a story of grace. We're going to talk about grace and how grace is woven throughout this story in some pretty magnificent ways. And before we get to the question, recognize this, that Jesus comes to this man. And he doesn't just come to this man and just ask a question just because he's bored. Now, Jesus is very intentional here. But it communicates something about grace. It communicates that Jesus is always willing to go where everybody else is not willing to go. You know, I'm a little hesitant sometimes to get caught on um, a, a little bit of this theology of Jesus as rebel. Jesus' um, main mission and message was not to be a rebel. You know, you hear people love, love to love Jesus because he was a rebel. I, I think we should love Jesus for other reasons before the fact that he was a rebel. And he simply was communicating the truth of God. The goal was not, look at me, I'm a rebel. He did not go to the pool of Bethesda just to create a stir. It did. Because he was taking, embodying grace in a place where grace was not present. In fact, it was a, it was a place that everybody in that culture had marked out and said, those people aren't worth anything. Just leave them there. Leave them out of our hair. And Jesus... And what Jesus always did is he concentrated on people in need, and he went to them. Look with me at John 1. This is a text that per, perhaps you know, verse uh, 14. It says, the Word, capital W there, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. What's it say? Full of Grace and truth. Jesus' presence, Jesus coming into that setting was an introduction to grace. That's why Jesus was there. He wasn't there just to create popularity, just to stir things up. He wanted to teach people about the core of the gospel, and that is grace. 
And so he steps into that setting and he embodies it. Going to the man. There are dozens of men and women laying around this pool. And he goes to this man. Why that man and not the others, I don't know. But he went. And it's an introduction to God's ability through Jesus to penetrate any situation. Here's, here's the lesson for us, church, is that we must understand, even when we discount people, when we take people in our minds and push them over to the pools of our life, out of the way, nuisance to us, away, is that God's grace can penetrate the worst of places, the most desperate of places. You must know that. I know you know it. We must believe it. We must live it because that is the message that this world is hurting for. And this man teaches us is that God's grace has the capacity to uphold anything this world dishes out. If you look in any steel building and you, you can see even here the, the columns, uh, even though they're wrapped um, and painted, is that columns, but if you, we were to take the ceiling tiles out, you would see beams across here. Any building of any size has that. Even small ones do a smaller size. When you are designing a building, you think about all of the load, all of the load of just the building, but then snow, all those kinds of things. And you do calculations because what you don't want is you don't want a column or a beam to fail. It must hold the capacity of whatever is going to be put on it. If it's a second floor, it holds the capacity of people as it, is, uh, as it stretches out to create the second floor. Here's what we know about God's grace. God's grace has the capacity for whatever we can calculate and throw at it. God's grace will never fail. God's grace will never buckle under pressure. God's grace is able to take any situation that is given to it. I hope you believe that. I hope you don't just know it, but I hope you believe it because if we want to introduce grace to people, if we want to fully live into grace ourselves, we have to understand its capacity. So then there's this question, and it's really kind of comical. The guy's been laying there for 38 years, and you have the audacity to say, do you want to get well? Really? I mean, come on. Jesus isn't trying to be funny, even though it sounds a little funny. But what Jesus does is he turns this introduction to grace and he turns it in to a question which essentially illuminates this invitation and work of grace. Do you want to get well? If, if we didn't know this story, but you knew the man, but you didn't know his response, and someone asked him, do you want to get well? what would you think his response would be? It would likely be something like we saw Zacchaeus jumping out of the tree or the woman who worked really hard to get to Jesus and even came back to Jesus when Jesus called her out. But what's fascinating here is that he doesn't say yes. You're asking yourself, really? You've been laying there 38 years, but your response is more about where your heart and your mind is at. He hasn't quite caught the grace that's right before him. Instead, he starts blaming. Instead, he starts saying, well, if, if somebody would help me get into the pool first, I would be healed. His understanding of God is that God was a first-come, first-served kind of God. 
He also felt, felt very abandoned at this point. He also was extremely negative. In other words, his circumstances surrounded him. It was so much of his life, he could not see grace. He couldn't see the grace right before him. That should be a caution and a warning to us because even as Christ followers, we have saving grace, but there's that grace that walks us through every element, every area of life until we take our last breath here on this earth. And then it's a whole different kind of grace in heaven. But the reality is, is that when we are asked a question like that, what we see is that grace confronts any misguided and misplaced hope. Grace confronts any misguided and misplaced hope. Now, if you are a stickler for notes, this is why I often don't do notes, because I change them by the time Sunday comes around. So I gave these to Dee, I don't know, Wednesday, was that right, Dee? And they switched a little bit, so bear with me. But here's the point. The point is, is that when we're asked a question like that, whether it's directly about healing, but it's about our understanding of life, our understanding of God, grace always invites us to something better. His question, do you want to get better? Do you want to get well? Was all about whether this man was ready to receive the grace. And it was clear that he wasn't. He wasn't ready because he didn't say, yes, I'm so desperate. No, he started blaming everybody around him. He started to share his view of God as, well, God must not really love me. Otherwise, he'd provide somebody for me. I don't know if you've ever known anybody. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where your circumstances just begin to overwhelm you. And you get to a point you are negative, and you get to a point that you start to become blinded to sometimes the grace before you. I don't want to pretend to understand some of the pain that some of you have been through. I've not experienced that in my life to the, to the depth that some of you have. But when grace shows up, it illuminates, it brings to life really where our heart and our mind is at. And it gives us an opportunity. It gives us an opportunity to respond to the invitation. What we can't do is keep moving our lives or the lives of others over to the pools in our life and depend on everything but God's grace. You see, this guy was depending on others. This guy was depending on himself. Now, those things in and of themselves aren't bad things. But if both of those become, if they come before our dependence on God, it's misplaced. We have to trust His grace. Look what Jesus does here, verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. Interesting. Jesus didn't decide to do a theological conversation and dissertation on the true understanding of grace with this man. This man, had, he believed in superstition. He believed in something that was not true. It was not of God. He thought the miraculous power was in the water. And Jesus said, no, I'm right here. It's a demonstration of God's grace. Jesus didn't wait till the guy got it right. That's why grace is so beautiful. It doesn't make sense sometimes. In fact, most of the time. I've heard some of you say to me before, I have no idea why God saved me, why God extended His grace to me. But He did. 
we see that Jesus demonstrates the grace in healing this man physically, not because he earned it, not because he understood it, because he wanted to continue to teach the heart of the gospel. And the heart of the gospel is that God's grace is always available, even when we're not ready for it. I want to read this quote, and I'm sorry, I didn't put it on the screen, I should have. But I want to read this, because this is from a commentary, and I think it just really captures where this man is at, where we have or are, and what God's grace is all about. Grace is the dimension of divine activity. In other words, it's, it's exercised where God, it, it, the activity that enables God to confront human indifference and rebellion with an inexhaustible capacity to exercise goodwill right at a person's point of need. This is a really horrible illustration. It's kind of like the perfect gift that you need, all right, times gazillion. Look at Hebrews 4 here. Hebrews 4 says this, and it speaks to Jesus as our priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now look at the result of this. Verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus does an incredibly significant, beautiful thing here in healing the man even though he wasn't ready to receive it. He didn't have it all figured out. But it speaks to the character of God. We must understand that grace speaks to God's love for you and me and for everybody at the pool, everybody at any place in this world. I wonder how far away we are from that. I hope not far. I hope that when we see grace, what we see is we see that grace reveals God's power to change, to bring change, excuse me. God's power to bring change. In other words, when grace shows up and grace is demonstrated, there is a power, a supernatural power that's not about the water, it's about the man Jesus and what he's done and how that should impact our life. Some say that um, as you read the beginning of this, you know, he was coming into a feast. And if you look at it, some would say, okay, these feasts are very important. That's why Jesus came to Jerusalem. He was really coming to to the feast. No, Jesus came to Jerusalem to heal a man. He came to Jerusalem to demonstrate the power of God. Sometimes we can get caught up in particular rituals or traditions, and everybody thinks others are traditions and theirs are not. There's things we do all the time. The reality is we all have them, and they're not bad things, except when they don't lead us to worship God. Jesus wasn't going to come into a town and observe a feast just because that's what was done and miss the opportunity to heal a man and teach people about His grace. You can see which played most important. What plays most important in our life, I think, is the question. Is God's power revealed in the grace in our life? Verse 10. 
And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. A man that these religious leaders knew for 38 years, many of which he laid by the pool. And guess what? Old Joe's got his mat on his shoulder and he's walking through town. And what do they say to him? You're carrying your mat. It's a Sabbath. Now we look at that and we can condemn. But I want to challenge us here. Because the reality is, who do we miss? We have to be a church that no matter what their burden, no matter what their struggle, no matter what their sin, is that we do not stop them at that door. You know, in light of this issue of human sexuality that we're in debate with and actually in disagreement with our denomination, the reality is, no matter where we end, The truth of Scripture is that the grace of God should be more present in this place than any place else because believers are here. And my friends, we cannot shut doors to a lifestyle that while we may not agree with, they are sinners just like the rest of us. And so we have to, more than ever in this culture, not cast those who live differently, not cast those who are not like us to the pools. We need to welcome them to the church because there is where they will see change. There is where they will be healed just like we, some, have experienced. And grace is the foundation of it. Grace is the core of it. And they will not care what I say. They will not care what's on our walls. They will not care what's on our website. What they want to see is grace lived out in every one of you. Every one of us, including me. I don't know what all that looks like. I I really do not. But what I know is that we've got to keep going back to God's grace. We've got to still realize the power of God's grace. We've got to still realize that grace will confront misguided hope and misplaced hope, and grace will bring change. So that's when Scripture tells us to be administrators of grace, we must do that. We can't be religious leaders who just say, wait, you're carrying your mat. Wow, we can't do that. We shouldn't do that. It's not that there's not a time to talk about law. There's not a time to talk about redemption. But grace does something for us here. It brings to the forefront the primary, the necessary, the most significant part of the gospel. And that is grace teaches us God's plan of redemption. It's all about redemption. It's all about becoming right with God. And it talks about our desperate need for him. If we at any point believe that the people coming through the doors of this church are in greater need than us, God have mercy on us. We've all been there. Some of us are there now. Look at Romans 3, 23 and 24. Some of you know this. For all have sinned, and don't, don't switch this yet. For all, have swind, swind, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's that second word? Okay, all. Now, next verse. And what's that word? 
all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Grace levels the playing field. Grace says it doesn't matter how you came. It doesn't matter. But if you're willing to receive God's grace, you will be redeemed. Praise God. Praise God for that because that saving grace is what allows us to be ministers of grace to others. It takes us back to our our theme verse. Look at this theme verse. Read it with me. You know the routine by now after week three into week four. 2 Corinthians. Read it with me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. You see the power of that? You see what's laying right there before this guy now? This guy has received grace and healing, and what Jesus is about to do is to say, that's only the beginning, if you'll receive it. And and so, there it is, laying out, right there, right in front of it. And what we understand here is that the guy already is blaming Jesus. Instead of praising Jesus for the healing he's received. In fact, he doesn't even really know it's Jesus, which isn't all that strange, except the fact that he doesn't seek a closer relationship with Jesus. He doesn't pursue him anymore. He's like, hey, I got my mat. I could walk. Let's go. And he takes off. He runs into Jesus again at the temple. And here's what happens in verse 14. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. You know, we don't know what happens to this guy. There's no follow-up story that, you know, he repented and he accepted God's full grace and then went about and lived a very different life. We know that was Jesus' desire. There's no question about it. But here's a warning for us. The warning for us is that Jesus here reminds us, reminds the man of his change, but then he gives a warning and says, stop sinning. Shows us the heart again, is that while God wants to bring physical healing, God never wants to do that without bringing spiritual healing. Spiritual healing always always is more significant in the eyes of God than any physical healing, as important as it may be. And so there it is. He kind of lays it out in front of the guys and says, the, the guy and says, so stop sinning. Stop sinning. In other words, show, show the tra- change that can truly happen in your life. Grace teaches us the plan of redemption, but the only thing that stands in the way of us from being redeemed is us not accepting it. It's like that gift you get and you say, nope, no thanks. No matter how bad the giver wants to give the gift, if you don't receive it, if you don't receive it, you won't experience it. And what's interesting is this man received the healing physically. But we're not really sure what he does beyond that. Let that not be true of us. Grace calls us to commit 
to right living. Grace always calls us to that greater living. This is not about perfection. This is not about having everything figured out in our life. But it always means that we are dependent on grace to take our next step. Look at Titus 2, 11 and 12. Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. It's interesting that sometimes we want to accept God's grace and sometimes it's a little too difficult. It's a little too challenging and we find ourselves in circumstances where grace while it doesn't demand it of us, we can't be like this man and let us be indifferent to it. In other words, we can't ignore it. When grace invades our life, we either accept it or we don't. And when we accept it, it requires a response or it, it, it calls for a response. Josh and Pastor Josh in a couple of weeks is actually going to going to talk about um, the, the religious leader's rejection of Jesus. Very different encounter. This guy, we're kind of out there. We're not really sure what he did. But what we know is that there is a point that if we turn away from God's grace, if we fail to administer it, what we see is what is described in Romans one twenty one, which is a pretty, pretty ugly picture. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's interesting because sometimes people say the question was, so how far is too far? I don't know, but I don't want to push it. I don't want to get close. I don't want to get to the point to where I am not living God's grace in my life. I don't want that for us. So our response to grace comes in a lot of different ways. One of the things we've been talking about over the last few weeks is we've been talking about serving. We've been talking and we've really been making a push to challenge people to find places to serve. This is not just about, hey, we got stuff we got to get done. This is really about being a, a, an administrator or a minister of God's grace. And I encourage you to look. If you're not serving anywhere right now, look for, talk to, to staff, talk to, go to the information desk, go to those involved in ministry and find out how you can administer grace in serving to the people that we want to see come into this church who know nothing of God's grace except for what they see it in me and you. To begin to teach them. But look at that opportunity not just as getting a job done or keeping a ministry running. No, it's about changed lives. It's about people understanding anew God's grace. What's your encounter with grace? I look out here and I, I know some of your stories pretty, not only dramatic, but pretty significant stories about God's grace. Don't be afraid to share it. Don't be afraid to talk about the grace that taught you about redemption. And if you haven't received that, again, showing up at church doesn't guarantee that. It requires a commitment in your life. And I encourage you to make that commitment. Talk to one of the elders, one of the pastors, someone you know who knows and loves Jesus and ask them about how to accept that redeeming grace. Let's pray. 
Father, thanks for the story and what it teaches us about grace. Thanks for learning of how we each are introduced, we each are invited. We see demonstrations of grace all around us because of you, Jesus. Father, let us take heed the warning here that we don't ignore it, we don't run away from it, we don't take it lightly, but that we seek to live into it free and full of truth in our lives. As we close in worship and we focus on you, Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us. Lead us to this altar if we need to be here, whether that's to praise you, to cry out to you, or to simply be in your presence. Lead us there. In Jesus' name, amen.